scripture reading for today, Revelation 1, 1 to 16. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Greetings to the seven churches. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Vision of the Son of Man. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard him, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the reading of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Um, Anne-Marie just got baptized recently, too, so we're so excited the ways that the Lord has been uh, blessing her. So can we give it up for Anne-Marie? Um, so today, I just also want to just bring to our attention, I know it's on, on 9-11, and uh, just, uh, uh, just, uh, we just reflect back on 21 years ago. And for those of you that have been alive, we know, uh, you know exactly where you were when that took place. Um, I was on my way to college in the city. I was in seminary uh, when I heard, when I saw what was taking place there. And that's just edged in our minds. And so today we want to just remember all, the, uh, all those that lost their lives and all the loved ones who are grieving and just remembering as well. Just the testimony that's coming out of that. Um, and so would you just join me? We're just going to pray over that, and we're going to pray over the message as well as we start a brand new uh, sermon series. We are on in Revelation. It's going to get kind of scary just to let you know, but it's going to be good. I'm going to try my best not to be too scary with it. So uh, let's 
join together in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you right now, Lord, and as a country, we just just reflect and we just think about everything that transpired 21 years ago. And God, we just think about the evil that took place on that day. Um, And Lord, we just speak the good. We know that good will overcome all evil. And Lord, on on this day, Father, we speak your hope to the families um, at this moment as well. And, and God, we just thank you, Father, for you are, you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And God, I just pray right now for this message, and I pray, Lord, for, uh, just get to, for us to just have ears to hear what you want to say as we dive into this heavy topic on the book of Revelation. Uh, help me, Lord. I just hide behind the cross that I will just get out of the way, that you will be seen and heard. Just thank you and praise you. It is in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. So um, I was uh, listening to this one pastor, and he was talking about, well, he said that, you know, we should all be concerned about the future, and that's because we are going to spend the rest of our lives there, right? And yet, I love what my favorite president of the United States, the great Abraham Lincoln, what he said. He said that the great thing about the future is that it only comes one day at a time. So we do, in this book of Revelation, we look to the future. And it is going to be daunting to read this when we discover that the Bible predicts what the future is going to be like. And so, but we are just living one day at a time as we all just march forward to the grand events of all events, and that is the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to come back and to take control of this crazy planet that he created and that we just absolutely ruined. So we're going to be looking at this book of Revelation for the next couple of weeks, and so I want to just start off and say this, that... I believe that this is not an allegory, this is not fantasy, this is not poetry, this is not legendary prose, this is predictive prophecy. That's what this is. And um, I also want to let you know that as a pastor that I take the Bible literally, though I do give just margin for literature that are figurative in nature that points to a reality like the book of Revelation does. So the book of Revelation, it gives more details about the end of the days, the last days of human history and into the eternal state more than any other book in the Bible. And a a lot of books are prophetic and, and feed into this book of Revelation, like the book of Daniel. And others, like Matthew chapter 24, we see the words of Jesus, the Olivet Olivet Discourse in it. But the book of Revelation really just unpacks and reveals in great detail the great tribulation and the coming of the man of sin that the Apostle John calls the Antichrist and the final conflict in the Middle East that's going to take place to the return of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. Right, and all of that is worked out in the last book of the Bible, this book of Revelation. This is predictive prophecy. 
And uh, sad to say that many people have been afraid to speak from this book. And just reading through it, you're just like, this book is weird. This book is scary. And just to let you know, I, I think I'm one of those guys because this is the first time I've preached on a Sunday morning on the book of Revelation. And I think I think the reason why that I kind of stayed away from that is because on a Sunday morning, people from different backgrounds are coming in, and I like to kind of just preach the gospel, on the, you know, and so it's been kind of difficult. In a Bible study, it's fine, but this has been challenging, and this is the first time I'm able to do this on a Sunday morning, um, and I think also because you read through the book of Revelation, and you're just like, man, this is weird. This is like stars falling from heaven and burning up the earth, like so many people are dying. This is just absolutely scary what is taking place here. About 10 years ago, I was helping out with a church plant in the Bronx. So I would go to my church and serve as a youth pastor, and then I would go to the Bronx in the afternoon and serve as an associate pastor of a church plant there. And we were able to just minister to so many people that's you know, the South Bronx is one of the most uh, challenging places in the, in, the, in the country to kind of live with just drugs and everything taking place there. And I remember uh, one person coming up to me, knew I was a pastor, and we were talking about Revelation, and he says, he was coming up to me, he was on drugs and stuff, he was like, you know, I love to read the book of Revelation doing LSD. And I'm like, yikes, that is not a good idea, okay? Like, first of all, it is not good to do drugs, yet alone LSD, and on top of that, read the book of Revelation, right? Like, that is not a good way to interpret this book. It could just cause some damaging results, okay? it's a lot of therapy right there doing that. But just so many people, though, are just so afraid of this book because the thing is, people don't get it, right? People just don't understand this book, And so my contention is that the book of Revelation is something that you and I, we can understand. It is something that God wants you and I to understand because the name itself is hence Revelation, right? God is wanting to show us something. God is wanting to reveal something to you. So this is not supposed to be cryptic. This is not supposed to be hidden, but this is meant to be revealed, But people are afraid of it. In fact, they all prophesy. They all prophesy in general. And a lot of people say that this book is a distraction. You know, this really shouldn't, people shouldn't dwell on future prophecy because all that is a distraction. And so when I hear that, I'll say, well, you know what? Well, if that's the case, God has certainly put a lot of distractions in the Bible. Because you know why? Because a fourth of the word of God is predictive prophecy, a fourth of it. That's 25% is prophetic, but people are afraid of it, right? Uh, The great uh, reformer, Martin Luther, he was somebody as well who didn't like this book. And so at one point, Martin Luther, one point in his life, thought that this should not be in the scripture. And so What he did was he would divide uh, Scripture into two categories, okay? So I'm going to show off with my little Greeks and my little Bible study, Bible school stuff here. But he called it it this, heterolegomena and and antilegomena. So that is 
approved, authentic books, and then you have disputed texts, right, anti-legomena. And so he had seven books that he put in this category, and one of the books that he put in this category is the book of Revelation. Also, another great uh, reformer, John Calvin as well, he didn't like this book as well, and so he wrote a commentary on the New Testament books, except for one book he didn't write a commentary on. Guess what book that was? The book of Revelation. Now, if you're here today and you're listening online and you don't take this literally, and if you are um, what theologians call an amillennialist, which is you're somebody here that does not believe in the millennial rule and reign of Jesus Christ, then if that is you, you are probably inclined to think that way, right? You're, you sort of are here, and you sort of just want to dismiss it. You want to, you know, you, you say this is not for today. This is all allegory that's here. This is not meant to be taken in a literal form at all. It doesn't say what it means to say. It means something else. And so when folks ask me that, you know, and I'll just, I'll just ask them, well, you know, what do you, well, what do you think that it means? And I don't really get a, you know, I don't, they don't, they don't give me a reply as well because they're not really sure. But I don't think we should be afraid of this book, right? But, but I want to say also that in those days, in John Calvin's day and also in Martin Luther's day, uh, the, the events that are written in the book of Revelation and the scale that it was written um, and about the future really seemed hardly possible at that time. But today... <laughs> Today, we read the book of Revelation, and this is just all highly probable. This just makes sense. Like, I mean, you read this, and you're going, well, I, I, yeah, I actually see that happening, right? I can see this happening in short order, right? And so let's begin here today. Uh, we've got a bunch of verses, so let's go to verse 1. It says this in verse 1, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation, I'm just going to stop right there for a moment. That word, uh, revelation, is uh, the, the word apocalypsis. I told you I'm going to show off with some, some Greek stuff today here. Uh, but, so we get the word apocalypse from that. So when a person thinks of the word apocalypse, what do you think of? You think of catastrophe. You think of like total destruction that is taking place. And if you look at the English dictionary and you look up that word apocalypse, that's what it says. It's a total destruction of everything. But that is actually not the meaning, though. The original meaning of the word uh, apocalypse or apocalypsis is it is a word that is used um, 18 different times in the entire New Testament. And what it means is to disclose. It means to reveal. Right? It means to disclose, it means to reveal. So what does it reveal? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's like in verse 1, it's like, it's like the author is saying, ladies and gentlemen, here is Jesus Christ. Right? Like right up front, right off the bat, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's continue on reading. It says this, which God gave him to show to his servants the things uh, that must soon take, take place. He made it known by his servant, John. 
So it is interesting here that there are some people who say that the, you know, the, with Revelation, a problem with that is that this book doesn't recognize Jesus. A lot of people say that. But I would just push back on those people and I would say, no, this book is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. You go to chapter 2 and 3, which we're going to be continuing on for the next couple of weeks. Jesus is seen as a master and the Lord presiding over the church. You go to chapter 4 and 5, Jesus, he is the glorified Lamb of God in the courts of heaven, and uh, he is being worshipped by the throngs in heaven. You go to verse uh, 6 to 19, Jesus, he is the judge meeting over the God's wrath upon the earth. You go to chapter 19, he is the returning Lord of lords and the King of kings. You go to chapter 20, Jesus, he is the bridegroom ruling over the newly revised millennial creation for a thousand years with a bride. You go to chapter 21 and verse 22, uh, chapter 22, he is the illumination of new Jerusalem and of the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is all over this book. He is all throughout this book. He is highly exalted in this book. In fact, a vision of him occurs in the very first chapter here. And so let's continue with the first chapter. This is what it says. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which, which God, that's God the Father, gave him, gave to Jesus to show his servant, right? God gave to Jesus and Jesus gave to John. And he sent, the NLT version here says, he signified it by the angel to his servant, John. Okay, so, but notice in verse 1 here, it says that things which must shortly take place. To me, that's the key word here. It's the word shortly, right? Because you're reading this and you're going, well, shortly. Uh, well, this book was written 2,000 years ago. Shortly? That doesn't make sense. Like, could you define that for me, God the Father, right? Jesus, John? Who, could you just define what that means shortly? The word here is important. It's the, another Greek word here. It's, it's the word intaki, intaki. And we get the, the word taki is a Greek word from which we get the word tachometer. And for those of you that don't know what a, a tachometer is, it's for, what it is is it's an instrument that measures velocity, so it is this idea that when events begin to take place, they will, they will just take place rapidly and shortly. Once the events that are written about, once it takes place, it is going to, going to be a, a long time from there. It might, it might take a long time, but once it starts happening, it's going to happen in a short period of time. It starts ticking, right? And there is a velocity to it. And so that's what I think Jesus meant when he said, when Jesus said this, he said, unless those days were shortened, there would be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Speaking of the days of the tribulation period. Let's go to verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3 reads like this. It says, who bore witness to the word of God, right, that is John, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, who all things that he saw, 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hears and, and keep what is written, for the time is near. You see, the Apostle John is here at this moment in the rock island of Patmos, and Patmos is 25 miles out into the sea off the uh, coast of uh, modern-day Turkey, which is Asia Minor at that time. And this was a, a penal colony, so they held prisoners in this island. And it was a, a small, barren island, and it was about six miles wide and 10 miles long. But notice in verse 3, the promise, right? It's the only book that has a promise in it. Blessed is he who, re who reads and those that hear the words who keep what is written. Blessed. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking in a series on the Psalms, and I defined what blessed means. And I shared that blessed is translated, oh, the joy, right? Oh, how happy are those that read this book. Now, if you are familiar with Revelation, that might strike you as an odd promise because you're just like, you know what? You read the book of Revelation and you get into chapter 6 and people are dying and plant life is just getting destroyed and, and there's just everything is just catastrophic and pretty disastrous. You read this and it's like pretty grim. What kind of joy is in that, right? What joy is in that? But you know what we got to do? We got to keep reading. We got to keep reading. There's more to it. We got to keep reading all the way to the end because that is where joy kicks in. Because it eventuates the return of Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning, judging over Satan, putting him away, the, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, it gets better. It gets better, but we just got to keep reading. Got to keep reading. And so the book has a promise to it. It has a promise of joy. And I think that you and I, we will rob ourselves of a lot of joy if we neglect the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to take us to the very end of the book uh, here for a moment. Uh, so if you have your Bible, we're going to go to chapter 22. It is repeated in uh, verse 6 and 7. I didn't, I didn't give this to the media team, just kind of put this in, but chapter 22, verses 6 to 7, this is what it says in 6 and 7. It said this, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of prophets, has sent his angels to show his servants what must, and here it is again, what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly, blessed, for the one who is full of joy. Oh, how happy is that person, is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I heard the story of the great Billy Graham, and Billy Graham was once asked by a group of senators, and they asked him, hey, hey Billy, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And Billy Graham responds, and he says, I'm optimistic. And they say, well, Billy, why are you so optimistic? And what Billy Graham said, he goes, well, I read the last book. I read the last page on, in, in this book, and guess what? We win, 
right? We win. That the devil is bound for a thousand years. Satan is eventually destroyed, and we rule and we reign with him forever. And because of that, I am optimistic. And so it is promised for us. Great joy promised for us. Um, speaking of, of, of the devil, the, I was listening to a podcast, and this one uh, pastor said this, um, talking about Louis uh, Talbot, and he speaks about the devil. And this is what he said um, in that podcast. He said, Louis Talbot said this, the devil has turned thousands of people away from this portion of God's word, talking about this book of Revelation. He does not want anyone to read a book that tells of his being cast out of heaven, nor is he anxious for us to read of the ultimate triumph of his number one enemy, Jesus Christ. The more that you study the book of Revelation, the more you understand why Satan's fight so hard to keep God's people away from it. So this right here, it is the book of Revelation that predicts the total rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all of his creation. And it talks about the demise of Satan after his incarceration and his judgment. But it is a special kind of prophecy. This is a special kind of prophecy. You know, it's not like point one, the rapture of Jesus, and then theology just follows. Point number two, the tribulation period. Right? It is written very differently. And here's what it says in verse 1. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Pastor Finn, uh, you're still on verse 1. I mean, come on, when, when are we going to get this started? Um, verse 1 is really good, okay? Let me stay on that for a moment. So this is what it says in verse 1. It says, and he sends, and in the NLT version, this is the word I was talking about. What's the next word? It says signified, signified. That word signified is such an important word, right? It means to tell or to reveal by signs. So it is written in sign language or uh, a language of signs or a language of idioms. And so here's why I believe when people say, well, you know, why is the, the language of Revelation, this apocalyptic book, why is it just telling us of things what's going to happen, of the beasts and you know, three lampstands, and there's just a sword just going out of the mouth of Jesus. You're like, so many symbolisms that are here. Why? A couple of reasons. Reason number one, reason number one is this. You see, symbolism, what it does is it withstands time and culture. When something is written like this, cultural, like linguistic barriers, it just changes every couple of years. And so, right, like, like the human language is just very fluid, isn't it? It just changes all the time. So when you write about in signs, it kind of transcends the cultural differences and time barriers there. So that's the first one. The second one is this, is that when you write something with all these kinds of symbols, it makes for this, like, dramatical emotional impact, doesn't it? Like, it's one thing to say, well, there's coming a world leader. One thing to say that. Um, it's another thing to describe him as a beast, as a ferocious beast. All right, that does something that just heightens the emotional impact on you. And, and I think for those reasons, that's how the writer kind of approached this. 
And so something else, these idioms here are foreign to us unless you are a student of the Old Testament. So if you are a student of the Old Testament, then these idioms and the revelation here, they're familiar to you. And here's what I mean by that. Because out of the 404 verses that, you know, compromise the Old Testament that talks about verses like this, 360 contain pieces here of Old Testament scripture. And so you're going to find these idioms that are mentioned in this book in Revelation that is connected to the Old Testament. So it presupposes that you have this working knowledge of the Old Testament. And so because then you read the book of Revelation and and this is familiar to you. And so uh, for the first century Jewish reader that is reading this, it makes absolute perfect sense. But for the 2022 post-COVID group of Gentile believers, like, it does, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of understand. But let's keep reading, though, right? So I'm going to go down to verse 19 here, and here's what I want to show you in chapter 1, verse 19, as we move. John is here, and he's going to give us his outline. All right, so chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, write, therefore, the things that you have seen. All right, that's number one. The things that are... That's number two. And the things which will take place after that. That's number three. Now, that is precisely how the uh, book of Revelation is laid out. John first writes these things that are seen. That is the vision of Jesus Christ. And then he writes about the seven churches. And we're going to just look um, at these seven churches in in the next couple of Sundays, okay? The things which are. He talks about the conditions which are going on in the seven churches in Asia Minor at that particular time. And then in beginning in chapter 4, he goes to the end of the book, and then he writes about the things that's going to take place after the things, after Jesus' coming. And so in chapter 1, verse 19, when he says this in 1, verse 19, um, it is this word, as I was kind of studying this, is that word, uh, meditata. And what that means is beyond these things. And then when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, it begins by saying, and after these things. So that Greek word uh, meditata there is beyond these things. It is after these things. So that is how this book is written. And so the writer here, what he sees is that, you know, uh, the things which are, the the things, the conditions of the seven churches in Asia Minor, we're going to look at that next Sunday, then he writes about the future, and then he writes about the things after that as well. So let's uh, look at that as how he writes this here. In chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, and we'll skim through some of this for the sake of time here. Uh, It says this, verse 1, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, all coming in the next couple of weeks. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the son of man clothed 
with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes like, were like a flame of fire, his feet like a roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, the sun in full strength. And when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Now, this is, the, this is John the Apostle here, and this is a man who walked with Jesus. He remembers seeing Jesus face to face in the flesh. He, he remembers seeing Jesus as a Nazarene. And he remembers seeing Jesus when he was transfigured before him with Moses and Elijah. He saw the resurrected Christ. He watched Jesus ascend into heaven, but he had never, ever seen Jesus look like this. Now, John is in the Spirit, and he says, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, or unto the day of the Lord, it could literally be put that way, and in this capacity, he sees Jesus as the coming judge. Jesus is a coming judge. And so now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, it's this vision that, you know, he sees is similar to the vision that is put in the chapter in the Old Testament. But John sees Jesus here as the coming judge. And did you notice here that he says, in the midst there are seven lampstands? And then in verse 16... There are seven stars. Luckily, we don't have to go and figure out what that means. We don't have to make a guess, right? Like, I think it means this, or I think it means that. We don't have to do that because we are told exactly what it means. Let's go to verse 20 of chapter 1. This is what it means. It says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw is my, in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, messengers, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So the seven churches that we're going to dive into next week are depicted here as seven lampstands. And how fitting that is, right? How fitting it is that the role of the church in any community is to be a bright light, a bright, shiny light for that community. That's why Jesus said, Jesus said in the Gospels, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. To be more exact, our role is to be light bearers. It is to be a light bearer on a lampstand to show people out of the way of darkness. And so how do you get out of a, a desperate darkness of this world? You know how we get out of that? How get, we get people out of that? We follow Jesus. We love Jesus. We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it is just a fitting description of the church here. So verse 15 here, it says this, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Right? The, the brass here is a symbol of judgment. And again, if, if, we're not, if you may not be familiar with the Old Testament here, 
you're reading this, what you see is that in the tabernacle, uh, an animal was killed on the altar made of, bron- of, uh, of brass. And the animal was bled, and it was bled on the brass altar, and it was engulfed in the flames on the brass altar. And so brass was a symbol of judgment. And the brass altar was a place where sin was judged by God so that people now could approach God in that tabernacle setting. And so when we get here to chapter 2 of Revelation, we're now dealing with the second part of that, and that is the things which are, right? The things which are seen, he does that. The things which are, that is the things of Jesus Christ. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes. Chapter 2, verse 3, are uh, seven letters to seven churches. And really, they're, they're not like letters. Uh, they're shorter than that. So they're more like seven postcards to seven churches, right? So postcards. Um, if Jesus were to kind of drop a postcard in the mail to the churches, this is what it would read. And you may be asking, well, why is it seven? Why seven? The, one of the things that you'll notice is that, that it's very seven conscience here. Why these seven? There are seven churches located in Asia Minor that were facing persecution in the day, that were being tempted to compromise. But why these seven churches? Like, for example, you may be asking, well, why not the most prominent church the church in Jerusalem, how come that church isn't mentioned? Well, how come maybe the second most prominent church, the church in Antioch, how come that's not mentioned? Or how about the most famous church, the church in Rome, how come that's not mentioned? None of those are mentioned, but these seven are mentioned. The seven churches that are listed in Revelations 2 and 3, these seven uh, letters here represent number one, These are seven historical churches that had the exact condition going on at that time. And number two, the seven letters to these seven churches speak about the historical conditions of the church from the um, apostolic era of of that time to the um, apostolic era of just the apostate era of the end days as well. All of the eras of church history is just summed up by these seven letters that we're going to be diving in next week to these seven churches. And so we're going to be reading this, and as we read this, we're going to, we're going to be like thinking um, that there's an order to this, right? And like these things could just connect with us as well for our time. Because number three, these letters are, have a timeless application. It is for all the churches of all ages, right? It has a personal application to us, and we're going to dive into that in the coming weeks. And you, we're going to read through these churches, the conditions of these churches, and you will be able to relate to this in such a special way. So I want you to get ready. We're going to have a great time in these coming weeks, and you're going to be reading it one by one. We're going to get up to the, church, the letter in Philadelphia, and you may feel like the church in Philadelphia. We may get to the letter in Laodicea. You may feel like the letter in Laodicea, depending on what's going on in your life. So these letters are going to be speaking to us in the coming weeks. So now, um, all these letters are letters that Jesus gives, and Jesus does two things. Number one, he, he borrows a portion of the vision of chapter one to introduce himself to the church, 
um, in unique and different ways. And in all of the seven letters, he says this. He says, I know your works. I know your works. He makes this evaluation, but he, but he always says, I know your works. I know all about you. And he is the perfect one bringing this judgment and this evaluation. And so as I close in a moment, he, let's go through this in chapter 2 and 3. He, let's look through the last one on the last chapter here. In chapter 3, verse 14 to 16 and 19, he says this there. He says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, would, you, would that you were, neither cold nor hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let's go to verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Typically here, we, we, we quote verse 20 about non-Christians, right? We, you know, it's, that's, like, that's the application generally. But please notice in this context here, Jesus is speaking to not to unbelievers, but Jesus is speaking to his own church, which bears his own name. He is saying, I don't want your rituals. I don't want you to go through motions. I want your heart. I want to have an intimate fellowship with you. And that is the whole idea of this. I love what it says here. Well, whoever opens the door, I will dine with him. I will dine with him. You know, in the ancient Middle East, also modern Middle East as well, um, eating with somebody was a very special honor and a privilege. And it was always seen as that when you eat with someone, you become one with that person. Because if I eat bread, and if I give you a piece of some bread, that bread will eventually break down in my body and become part of my body, and the bread that you eat will eventually become part of your body and so in a sense, over a meal, we are becoming one substance. We're one with each other. And that is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I don't want you to fellowship with anybody named a brother, calls himself a Christian, right? But he names all these people an adulterer, an idolater. Don't eat with these people, all these things, right? And he's basically saying, don't even eat eat with them. And this idea is that you are becoming one with them. You're becoming one with them. So don't eat with them. One of the things I love about Jesus in the gospel is Jesus loves to eat. And listen, y'all, I love to eat. I love food. So it makes me love Jesus all the more because Jesus loves to eat. And that's what we're going to have as well. We're starting in our church once a month, a lunch as well. And we want to Invite all of us once a month to come together in the lower level, and we're going to eat together and fellowship together. I love that. I love 
that we get to do that. That's why Jesus loves that. Jesus loves it. Jesus is like this in the gospel. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree, and we're going to go home. We're going to go to your home, and we're going to have some lunch. So I know you didn't know this, but let's, let's get together, Zacchaeus. Let's eat, okay? So this idea is that Jesus is like, I don't want rituals. I want intimacy, and I want to get close to you. That's why in the scriptures, as I invite the worship team to come forward, I think this is just a great time to kind of transition as well into what the Lord, into the Lord's table, that we can come together and just partake of God's table today. So I invite the communion ushers as well. The communion table today is a reminder of God's sacrificial love for his creation. In Isaiah chapter 53, reminds us that Jesus was pierced for our transgression and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment was upon him brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Partaking in communion as we enter in today is more than just a memory, but it is a sign of Christ's living presence among us partaking of the bread and of the cup here today is in obedience to Christ who have offered the elements to his disciples, instructing them to eat of his broken body and drink of his shed blood. And because of God's great love for us, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, as a ransom for us. It is all only through the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ that you and I have been reconciled with God. Where sin, separation from God, and death entered into this world from the first Adam, atonement, reconciliation, and eternal life have come through the second Adam in Jesus Christ. The communion table is um, for anyone here who has professed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not decided yet, I want to invite you to please see me afterward, and I'd love to share of just the gospel with you as well. And if you are here today, um, I want to invite us all to evaluate our heart and to assess our hearts today. And so would you join me in a word of prayer? This communion table offers us a holy space right now to pause and to just consider those things in our lives for which we need to ask forgiveness of God. So before we partake of the bread and the cup, just take a few moments right now to reflect on your life. And would you confess your sins to God and repent of it and ask God for forgiveness Let's pause, for 10, let's pause for 10 to 20 seconds, and I will share a prayer and confession. And if you feel comfortable, you can say the prayer of confession with me.
Let us say this prayer confession together if you feel comfortable, and then we will eat from the bread and drink from the cup. Would you join me and say, God of all mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you, opposing your will in our lives. We have denied your goodness in each other, in ourselves, and in the world you have created. We repent of the evil that enslaves us, the evil we have done, the evil done on our behalf. Forgive, restore, and strengthen us through our Savior Jesus Christ that we may abide in your love and serve only your will. Amen.